Hello and welcome to Irish History Walks. My name is Patrick Walsh, I live in Ireland, more specifically Wicklow. And in this series of podcasts, I'll be exploring the history of Wicklow. Well, and wherever else is within driving distance and not too far away, so that could be Dublin, Wexford, Kildare. However, rather than chat about the Wicklow Jail, Charles Stuart Parnell, etc., you know, all the usual stuff, I'll be exploring some of our lesser-known history that could be hidden right on your doorstep. So without further ado, let's explore the Glenmalore lead mines. Before we start, however, I'd like to point out that I am not a historian, so this podcast should not be used as an academic reference, and this isn't some sort of college or university assignment. I'm simply a local tourist, just like you perhaps, with a keen interest in local history, having a bit of fun. Whilst I strive to make my podcasts as historically accurate as possible, the making of this podcast is as much a learning process for me as it is anybody else. In other words, get in touch if I get anything wrong. The Glenmalore Valley certainly is beautiful. A U-shaped valley carved out of the rock by glaciers during the Ice Age 20,000 years ago. I mean, I believe it's the longest glacial valley in Ireland. Quiet, serene, a wonderful patchwork of landscapes, all gorgeous in their own distinct way. Woodland pine, small fields, tumbling rocks, cascading waterfalls, coppery peat-coloured rivers. In every direction you look, you see a picturesque, colourful photograph, every one different. And yet 125 years ago, it was the site of a major mining operation that dominated the landscape. Throughout the 1800s, the lead mines at Glenmalure were producing anywhere from three to 400 tonnes of lead ore, several ounces of silver, zinc, and to a lesser extent copper every year. Smoke from peat tumbled down the valley from the smelter as the lead was melted down into bars, ready to be sold. I decided to do my first podcast on the mines at Glenmalore because even though they are a major part of Ireland's industrial heritage, they're just not that well known. There is something quite magical about the thought of a labyrinth of forgotten tunnels hiding beneath the landscape. There were essentially three mining locations along the valley, the Ballin of Hunshog site, the larger of the three locations, and the oldest lead mine in Wicklow, Ballinoganeen, and the Barravore mines further up the valley. You can't miss the nearest of the three mines driving down the valley from the Glenmalore Lodge, because you are immediately greeted by a lunar landscape, larger than a football pitch at the side of the road. Here, you can see huge spoil heaps, not only on this large dressing area, but also tumbling down the sides of the valley, an unmissable sight. It does give you a real sense of just how much rock had to be pulled out of the mountain just to get at the lead even. Nothing is growing here, or at least very little, save a few stunted trees. The quartz and grit that make up these spoil heaps still contain enough lead to kill off anything that tries to grow on this barren patch of land. There are green fields with the sheep on the valley, so whatever lead residue stops growth on the spoil heaps hasn't spread to the surrounding fields. Parking at the side of the road, you can see a small stream, a bright ochre-coloured stream or trickle. It's hard to overstate just how orange it is. It coats the stream bed and any weeds or vegetation spilling over from the bank. Why? Well, it's orange because it's saturated with iron oxide, rust from the mines. Iron is one of the most common elements on planet Earth, and it's only natural 
that it would be unlocked and exposed by miners as they pick away at the rock, trying to get at the valuable lead. The water itself is actually poisoned by this natural oxidization, although the handful of water boatmen I saw skimming their way across the surface didn't seem to mind. They were having a good time, you know? Interestingly enough, this brightly coloured stream also marks the site of the first portal and adit leading to the mine itself. Let's pause for a second. I think I need to explain a bit of jargon here and explain the layout of the mines themselves. Lead is contained within veins or loads as they're also known. The lead vein at Glenmalore runs parallel to the road pretty much and to gain access to it, you have to tunnel into the sides of the valley. These mine shafts that provide access to the lead are called adits and the entrance to one of these adits is called a portal. So the portal nearest the road do you know what? I'm going to call it a mineshaft. It's easier, isn't it? <laughs> the entrance has collapsed, but the stream can be traced into the hillside not far from the road. It's very likely that this marks the ground level entrance to the mine. There are multiple entrances further up the sides of the valley, and they are marked by this amazing cascade of sandy white spoil tumbling down the valley, with huge granite boulders resting at the bottom. The boulders look bare initially, but on closer inspection, you can see that they are covered in an incredible array of multicolored lichen. Lime green, black, orange, and white. I did climb up the spoil heap once, which was pretty nerve-wracking. It's so steep, but I didn't find anything. The mine entrances must have collapsed higher up too. I did get a wonderful view from the top, but I wouldn't recommend climbing up. It's potentially dangerous. I mean, getting up's not so bad, but coming down... Yeah, <laughs> more importantly than that though, I got plagued by flies. According to my research, the lead vein was mined on several levels. I believe the mines were as deep as 350 meters and were 900 meters in length. Once the ore was brought to the surface by horse and cart, it would have been sorted in the dressing area on large tables. This is the lunar landscape I have just described on the opposite side of the road. Here women, often the miners' wives, separated the lead ore from the worthless rock with their bare hands. For terrible pay, I might add, women were paid half the men's wages. On this site, there was a water-powered crusher house, two large rollers in a tall, thin rectangular building made of granite. The lead ore was carried up to the crusher and dropped down through these huge rollers. The more finely ground ore would have then been gathered and taken 500 metres up the road to the smelter. You can still see the remains of the crusher house. A small rectangular made pit marks the site of the water wheel, which would have been fed water from a small reservoir further up the valley. The water was carried down by gravity via leets. A leet is basically a small wooden aqueduct. In the adjacent field, you will see the remains of a building. Now, in all honesty, I don't actually know what it was for. However, it's hard to believe that it wasn't related to the mine in some way due to its close proximity. It's pretty cool to look at, and it certainly adds to the mystery of the area. Normally there are sheep chilling out amongst the ruins, which is cool. The mining operations here were large enough that a small horse-drawn railway system was put into place, drawing the lead out of the mines. Believe it or not, these wagons were also used to transport tourists underground to visit the chambers during the Regency era around 1822. A cast iron wheel from one of the wagons was actually discovered on the spoil heaps in 2014. It's hard to imagine tourists being taken down, and it must have been a health and safety nightmare. 
Not that they would have been that bothered about that sort of thing. You know, it would have been so cramped. As I mentioned very briefly earlier, about 500 meters north of Balina von Shog are the remains of the smelter house and the ore grinding mill. Here, the ground lead ore would be washed and melted down into small lead bars ready to be sold. Lead was used in a variety of ways, going back 8,000 years, right back to the Roman period. During the 1800s, lead has been used to make ornaments, paperweights and so on, but was most useful when constructing lead water pipes, mainly because lead is soft, malleable, resistant to corrosion, and can be shaped, much like copper. Yeah, shame it poisons you slowly, but then the life expectancy in Ireland would have been much lower then, so maybe it wasn't the end of the world, but I wouldn't like to say. Apparently, just 10 years ago, Remains of this small complex were cleared to make a car park for the adjacent camping ground, which is a travesty, provided that's actually true, of course. Unfortunately, nothing remains of the smelter at this location. It is literally just a car park. There is, however, something worth seeing. The really cool Millbrook waterfall, named after the adjacent mine workings. How high is the waterfall? I couldn't see through the top of the trees. It's not the only one in the valley. The steep sides of glaciated valleys make for good waterfalls. The water is sparkling and clear and so cold. You know, it hasn't come from a mine shaft. You know, and unlike the stream I mentioned earlier, you could genuinely drink it. This location also marks the continuation of the miners' walk. I keep meaning to walk it one day, but it's 19 kilometers in length, so I might have to split it into sections. Interestingly enough, donkeys were used to bring peat from the uplands down to the smelter. You can still see the remains of a path lined in parts by stone walls. Look at the trees that line the valley. Scots pine and very distinct. I actually think that they give the valley an almost oriental look. They were planted here by mining companies in order to provide pit props, wood for the leets, building floors, joists and so on. So much more attractive than the pines quilcher plant today. Although it's a bit open for debate when the mines officially opened, it is said that during the 1798 rebellion, rebels stole timber from the roof of the smelting house in order to, order to repair their pikes. The mines apparently opened for business in 1800. I guess that doesn't mean to say the smelting house wasn't constructed sometime before that though. On a somber note, a well-documented tragedy occurred here on the 23rd of March, 1867. A landslide washed away a miner's cottage, resulting in the loss of two children. Landslides were a common occurrence in the Wicklow Mountains. It's hard to imagine such a scenic location could be a place of such destruction. It's thought that approximately 30 men worked the Balanafung Show mines alone, and they would have moved to Glenmalure with their families. Cottages and other various facilities would have been built. In 1836, a school was built nearby with 70 children enrolled, so no worries about a future workforce then. The school was open until March 1875, until mining in the valley began to go into decline. It wasn't until 1900 that the mines officially closed for good. It is possible that the mines themselves actually closed at an earlier date, Technological advances allowed mining companies to extract lead from spoil heaps that would have been previously unobtainable. So, the spoil heaps 
were possibly processed for years after the mines closed. I have no proof of this, but it was common practice at the time, or so I believe. At the end of the valley, you'll reach a car park marked by a 1798 memorial. Here, the landscape changes once again. On the right-hand side of the valley heading up, we see barren rock slides. Stop for a moment and listen. Often this is a great place to spot wild goats, or the bacorn, as my grandma used to call them. Spotting a small group of multicoloured goats against the rocky hillside can be a bit tricky, like a game of Where's Wally? But even if you can't see them, you can certainly hear them, that's for sure. Here, you'll see the Avonbeg River. Like all the rivers in Wicklow, it's the colour of strong black tea, strained by the peat in the uplands. There used to be a ford across the river, and you can still kind of see it. Now, however, it's a regular road crossing. But if you stop, you can often see brown trout jumping up to catch a tasty meal. You have to be patient though, and your eyes have to be sharp. So now, we are in the townlands of Baravor. In 1851, 278 people lived in dwellings built by the mining companies here. Very little is left, but as you walk the road, to your left, under the trees, are the rocky, ghostly remains of cottages, hidden under moss and dirt, ravaged by time. The Miner's Way Trail ends here at Baravor at a well-preserved crusher house, the finest example in Ireland, and one of the few remaining examples. At 11 metres in height, it really brings history to life, and it's so nice to see it restored and preserved as it was in a sorry state not too long ago. It's just a shell of a building now, just the walls remain three feet thick. It would have been identical to the Crusher House at Ballinafung Show, and you can see where the water wheel would have been. Take yourself back, you can imagine lead ore being poured in. It must have been incredibly noisy. The entire valley, in fact. It's so quiet now. It's really hard to imagine the noise and the dust and the activity that was going on here. Not far above what's left of the cottages, there would have been a small, man-made reservoir that provided water to all the mills and crushers. Looking out here across the valley, you can see similar spoil heaps tumbling down the steep, rocky, barren hillside, much like those at Ballina Feng Shou. These mark the adits to the Baravor mines. There are also mine entrances above the Crusher House, but these are completely obscured by forestry now, unfortunately. The mines seem to have been developed as trial mines in 1846 for lead, zinc and copper, but they were only actually in operation until 1853. So a trial mine is basically a small mine, if anything for sampling and mining small amounts of ore in order to see whether large-scale mining would be profitable. In 1859, shares were sold, £6,500 in £1 shares in order to resume mining once again. A new company under the direction of a Captain Skimming immediately constructed new machinery including water wheels for working stamps and crushers. The Crusher House may actually date from this period. Despite the optimism of the promoters, however, the Baravor Silver Lead Mining Company didn't manage to secure funding for their renewed operation and in early 1861, the company was dissolved. It is possible that the directors of the company spent most of the money they raised on buildings and surface works in order to impress potential shareholders in the size of their operation, 
rather than develop the mine properly underground, which they should have done. From 1865 until 1875, the mines were under the ownership of Henry Hodgson, who was also working the Ballinafung Show mines. There are no production figures from this period, and the mines appear to have been abandoned. I believe during this time, although don't quote me on this, just 10 tonnes of lead ore was extracted, you know, a miserable amount really, when you consider the Ballinafung Show mine, as I mentioned earlier, was extracting 350 tonnes of ore on average every single year. It's hard to get a real sense of just how extensive the mine workings here were, so much would have been removed when the mines eventually closed. Any buildings that remained, the granite would have been reused elsewhere, and roof slates would have been taken away. It's amazing, really, that so much remains in the neighbouring Glendalock mines. That concludes my visit to the Glenmalore lead mines and brings to an end this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. I also want to credit Sharon Schwartz and Martin Critchley, Their extensive research into the mines was crucial to the making of this podcast. This podcast was produced and edited by me, Patrick Walsh. I also provided the musical score, took care of mixing and so on. But shout out to Pixabay Sounds and Sound Bible, Mike Koenig and so on, for all the stock sound effects. (laughs) 